ordinarily we work our way through entire books of the Bible. Typically, that's kind of our custom, our practice here at CRBC. And that enables us both to understand the Bible better, because we have an understanding book by book, what is written in the Bible. And it helps us keep things in proportion, so that it's not always just whatever the pastor is fired up about, but there's a sense of proportion that if God has written a certain amount about this, then over time we're going to have that proportion of that. And if God has written a certain amount about another thing, then over time we're going to have a proportion of that. But with last week being Christmas, we we took a little break from uh, the series that we were in, in in Revelation. And this morning we were just continuing to take a little break. Next Sunday morning we'll take a little break again. After that, Tevin will be preaching um, the next Sunday. And then we actually have Mark Chansky, who is the new coordinator of the Reformed Baptist Network in the island. So he'll be in. And then uh, in February, we have another pastor from the Reformed Baptist Network in. So there's a fair chance we're not going to be back in our ordinary series in the book of Revelation until perhaps late February. Uh, But I trust that all the messages that we will hear in the meantime whether they be a standalone sermon like last Sunday's was, whether they be standalone sermon like today is, or uh, whether they be part of a little mini-series, if some of the guys from the U.S. bring us a little mini-series, I don't know. Uh, trust that it will be profitable to us. But this morning, rather than get back in Revelation, I thought we would turn our attention to this little phrase in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9. We make it our aim to please Him. This really ought to be the mantra of Christians. We make it our aim to please Him. Him being God, of course. The context of this verse is pretty simple. I just read the larger section for you a moment ago. Paul is writing to the Corinthians about death. And he's talking about how if we are home with Pardon me, if we are dead, then we are home with the Lord. And so we don't have to fear death. Death is going home. And he says that when we are alive, we are away from the Lord. That's what home and away mean in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9. So Paul is teaching the Corinthian Christians that in some sense, it's less desirable to still be alive because you are away. Away from the Lord, rather than being at home with Him. That's the larger section of teaching that Paul is giving in 2 Corinthians 5. And then Paul says, as a kind of summary statement of this section, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. So, this morning, January 1st, 2023, we all find ourselves away. That is... Away from the Lord. I trust you all are breathing. You have a heartbeat. You're here. You are away then. You are here, but you are away from the Lord. We all find ourselves away this morning, not in His presence. It could have been the case that last night God called you home. Or last month God called you home. Or it could be the case that tonight or tomorrow God will call you home. But for the time being, you find yourself away. And what should we do in the meantime, until God calls us home? How should we spend 
every year, including 2023, until God calls us home. Well, this passage tells us, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. So you, this year, should make it your aim to please Him. Briefly, there are three reasons why we should make it our aim to please Him. One is given to us in verse 10 here in this passage. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, lest anyone, now lest anyone misunderstand me, let me clarify this. If you're not a believer, you're not trusting in Christ Jesus, you should not hear, well... I will try to please God so that when I die, then I will receive a reward for what I have done in the body, the good that I have done in the body. I will make it my aim to please Him so that when I die, I will get a reward. If you're not yet trusting in Christ, that is not the gospel, that you would make it your aim to please God so that when you die, you would get a reward. That's how every other religion works, by the way. Every other philosophy, every other ideology, that's how everything works. You do something good, and then you get a reward, right? Whether, whether it's, you know, achieving Zen or Nirvana or going to uh, some kind of uh, paradise of sorts or some kind of other afterlife reward or whatever it is. That's how literally everything else works. You do good things, and then you get a reward, Here's the, the bad news that the Bible gives us. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Alright? So it, it, it didn't say all of your sin is as filthy rags. So get rid of your sin and keep only the righteousness. No, no, no. It said all of your righteousness is as filthy rags. So when you muster up the best you can possibly muster up and put it on your CV, so to speak. Right? Or your resume. And submit that to God. Here's all my righteousness. The Lord looks at it as like garbage. Alright? So, we have to realize here, that in this passage, Paul is not talking to a general audience comprised of Christians and non-Christians alike. And saying to everybody, hey, y'all should make it your aim to please Him, so that when you die, you will get a reward. Rather, Paul is writing to those who are already in Christ Jesus, who are already trusting in Him. See, justification, which is being made right with God and being saved, or condemnation, on the other hand, which is not being right with God and being damned, these things happen apart from our personal works. Alright? You are justified or condemned ultimately by who you are represented by. Romans chapter 5 verses 12 to 21 teach us about death in Adam and life in Christ. Alright? So, here's the reality. When you are born, you are born in Adam. Your representative before God is Adam. And because Adam sinned, you are in a broken relationship with God already by virtue of being part of Adam's fallen race. 
by your own personal works, all you do is add to your sin and compound your sin. But the Bible does not teach that we're born innocent and then subsequently we become guilty. The Bible teaches that us that we're born into an already broken relationship with God because of Adam. And then we compound the problem and we make it worse by our own sins. Likewise, you're not saved by your own personal works. It's not like you're born in Adam in this broken relationship with God. But you reform yourself. And you realize that you're doing a lot of bad stuff. And you, you realize you should do some good stuff. So you do some good stuff. And then all of a sudden now you're saved. That's not how it works either. Just as you're condemned in, in Adam and the situation gets worse because of your personal sin. So the only way you can be saved is by your relationship to a different representative. And so Christ Jesus came into the world to be a representative, a federal head, a covenant head of those who will trust in him and to act on our behalf. This is all the Christian talk of in our place substitution. Christ acted for us. And so it's not by our own righteousness that we're saved, but it's by the righteousness of Jesus. It's not by our own paying for the penalty of, uh, that we deserve for our sin, that we are forgiven, but it's because Jesus paid the penalty that we deserve for our sin on the cross. And so, so the way the Bible talks about it, ultimately, you're either saved or you're damned, because you're in Adam or because you're in Christ. Alright? Now, with that in mind, Paul is writing to the Christians in Corinth who are already in Christ Jesus. And he says to them that they should make it their aim to please Him because we, we Christians, will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The Bible teaches us, I'm going to move fairly quickly on through this point. It's an important clarification, but it's not the main point of the message. The Bible teaches us that as justified believers who are already saved in Christ, nevertheless, that we will receive either rewards or discipline for what we do personally, even after we're saved. And so uh, it's not immaterial what we do here and now. It's not neither here nor there. Either God will be pleased with us and we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And those who have been given ten talents and made ten more uh, will receive a reward greater than those who have been given three talents and made three more. Alright? So, uh, there is this judgment that is coming even for Christians. Where there are rewards and discipline attached to what we do, even as justified believers. So that's one reason. Alright, so... If we stop there, it's like, all right, well, look, if you're not saved, trust in Jesus and, and get saved. And if you are saved, now go out and try to get rewards this year in 2023. All right. I mean, it's true. It is true. But um, I'm not going to leave it at that for this morning. But that is one point that Paul makes here. Your life, your life matters. What you do matters even after you're already saved, already in Christ. A second reason that we should make it our aim to please Him is because God is our Creator. And this applies not just to believers, but also to unbelievers. In some places in the Scripture, God's sheep refers to believers. And we see from the context that what is meant 
is those who are God's people by virtue of their faith in the Messiah in contrast to those who aren't. So, for example, we, we see the sheep and the goats contrasted. You've probably heard that language before, right? In Psalm 100, listen to this. Sheep, God's sheep is everybody. Listen to this. Know that the Lord... Well, first of all, let me start with verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Who? All the earth. Come into His presence with singing. Who? All the earth. Know that the Lord, He is God. Who should know that? All the earth. It is He who made us. Who's us? All the earth. And we, who? All the earth, are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. So there is a sense, because we were all made... There is a sense in which we all belong to God. We are His. We are His sheep. This does not mean, as I hope I have been very clear about, this does not mean that everybody's automatically saved. But what it does mean is that you are not ultimately your own. You are God's. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you are God's. You belong to Him. He made you. You're His. If I build a chair, it's mine. And you come to my house and you say, I'm taking this chair home. I'll tell you, no, you can't. It's mine. I have a claim to it. I made it. It's mine. All right? If the chair could gain consciousness somehow and become self-aware and begin to make choices, it couldn't just say, I got four legs. I'm going to use them to get out of here. All right? I would tell that chair, don't you go anywhere. You're mine. And if the chair took its four legs and left, it would be a rebellious chair. Right? You are God's. All of you. Everyone in this room is God's. Because He made you. You are His. And so, as creations, as creatures, you should make it your aim to please He who created you. It's the only reasonable way of living, given the fact that you are created and you belong to God. Now, the fact that some of us have trusted in Christ Jesus and have been saved from our sin because of what Jesus has done for us, this only strengthens our obligation to make it our aim to please God. Now, if we had an obligation to make it our aim to please God as creatures... And then we said, yeah, but now we're saved. So it doesn't matter what we do. We're still going to be saved. Let's just go live however we want and displease God. Would that be reasonable? No. Because not only has God created you, Christian, but God has redeemed you. So He has done as much for you and more than He has done for everybody else. Which only strengthens your obligation to make it your aim to please Him, rather than remove it. You are not your own just by virtue of being a creature. But 1 Corinthians 6 tells us uh, Christians, those who, who, who are in Christ Jesus, it says you are not your own, you have been bought with a price. And so you're, you're twice God's if you're a Christian, if I can put it that way. 
Everyone is God's by virtue of being a creature. And Christians are twice God's by virtue of being creatures and then by virtue of having been bought with a price. Alright, so we should make it our aim, all of us, everyone ought to, this is the duty. We should make it our aim to please Him. Everybody clear so far? Three reasons why. Because of the coming judgment, and because God is our Creator, and because God is the Redeemer of His people. Alright? Everybody clear so far? Now if you're convinced, as you should be, by now, that we should make it our aim to please God, it would be prudent to consider next what this task is comprised of. What kind of life pleases God? Well, there are two passages which will greatly help us here. One is Luke chapter 10, verses 25 and following. It says, A lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, could you inherit eternal life without fulfilling all of the appropriate conditions attached to having eternal life? Or without someone fulfilling them for you? No. Right? So, what shall I do to inherit eternal life is synonymous with asking the question, what is God's standard? What are God's requirements for a human life? Right? Jesus says to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. As I've said before, Jesus is not teaching us salvation by works here. That if you're a lost sinner outside of Christ Jesus, what you should do is try real hard from now on to love and then you will inherit eternal life. That's not what Jesus is teaching here. What he's doing is he's answering the guy's literal question. What would constitute the righteousness that I would need to inherit eternal life? And quite literally, if you love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself, yes, do that and you will live. Elsewhere, Jesus and the rest of the Bible teaches us that you could not do that. Alright, but Jesus is simply answering the man's question literally. Love for God and neighbor is all that God requires of a human life. That's it. If you did that, you've done everything sufficient in God's eyes to warrant and merit eternal life. There's nothing that God would say, ah, but you've left such and such undone. That's all that God requires. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Luke 18 is a very, very similar passage. In Luke 18, a ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Hmm, same question, right? So what is the standard here? What are the requirements? What does God expect of a human life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Where do those come from? Ten commandments. Right? So... 
Jesus, again, he's not saying, well, if, you, if you're a lost unbeliever outside of Christ Jesus, guilty in Adam, just try to keep the Ten Commandments and you will live. No, no, no. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Again, what Jesus is doing is he's answering the question very literally. If you kept all of the Ten Commandments perfectly, then you would inherit eternal life. There would not be anything that God would say, well, you missed such and such. You missed this or you missed that. If you kept the commandments, you would inherit eternal life. This is what Jesus is teaching. So, all that God requires of a human is to love God and neighbor. What does that look like? Well, it looks like keeping the Ten Commandments. It looks like doing all the things that God requires and abstaining from all the things that God forbids. The Catechism asks, what is sin? And the answer is, sin is any transgression of or lack of conformity unto God's law. So when you do what you shouldn't, it's sin. And when you don't do what you should, it's sin. There's this positive and negative aspect of sin then. Sins of commission, doing what God told you not to. And then sins of omission, failing to do what you ought to have done. All, in a sense, all of the commands of Scripture which are binding on New Covenant believers is just an outworking of one of the Ten Commandments. Either the positive side or the negative side. And it is just an outworking of what love for God or love for neighbor looks like. But these passages in Luke 10 and Luke 18 show us that, that these can be summaries. The commandments can be summaries or love can be a summary. They're all, they're all saying the same thing. Now, all that God requires then, if we say, okay, let's make it our aim to please Him. All that God requires then for a life pleasing to Him is a life in which we do what He commands and abstain from that which He forbids. What does that look like? What does that look like? Well, some people balk at a distinction between sacred and secular. Saying things like this. I'm sure you've heard it. All of life is sacred. Or all of life is worship. But those statements are incorrect. Playing golf is perfectly legitimate. In and of itself. But it is not sacred. Nor is it worship. Sorry if you're a golfer and that offends you, but it's true. We ought to recognize that while we are to have a worshipful attitude, worshipful attitude at all times, and whatever we do, we are to do all unto the glory of God. The reality is that not everything that we do is worship, nor should we think of it as such. Sometimes we are engaged in secular tasks, like playing golf. Or changing a diaper. Or selling real estate. Or whatever else. We ought to realize that making a distinction between sacred and secular does not negate the importance of the secular. But it actually preserves the rightful place of both the sacred and the secular in our lives without blurring the lines such that one or the other is neglected. And that's going to be the pitfall that most people are going to fall into. 
They're either going to go, all of life is worship, so why do I need to go to church? All of life is worship, so why do I need to read my Bible and pray in the morning? All of life is worship, so I just prefer to just sit and look at the sunrise. All of life is worship, so I just work hard onto the glory of God seven days a week, 12 hours a day. And it says, you know, work as if you're serving the Lord Christ. So that's my lifestyle, and I embrace all of life as worship. And so I never read my Bible, I never pray, I never go to church, and so on and so forth. Or someone goes, well, I'm going to read my Bible and pray and go to church and so on and so forth. It doesn't really matter how I treat my family. It doesn't really matter how I work my job. It doesn't really matter how I take care of my other secular or, or my other responsibilities. What matters is being totally devoted to God. And so lives tend, to, obviously I'm generalizing and exaggerating, but lives tend to become imbalanced either in the direction of all secular or, or all sacred, if I could put it that way. But a life that is pleasing to God is a life in which both the sacred and the secular are recognized as legitimate and in which both are done well. In Mark 6, 31, the disciples come back from a little missions trip that Jesus had sent them on, if you, put it that, if you can put it that way. And they told him all the things that they had done and taught. Jesus, you'll never believe what, you know, this happened in this town. And then we told this guy this. And he said this. And then, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Jesus said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going. And they had no leisure. Even to eat. And the fact that it says even to eat indicates to us that the leisure and the eating may be distinguished even from one another. So there was two problems. One is that they hadn't been eating properly, and the second is that they hadn't been having leisure. They hadn't even been taking merely enough downtime to eat, let alone enough downtime to eat and relax. And Jesus sees that as a problem. In 1 Timothy 6, and verse 17, Paul is talking about those who are rich in this present age. And he says, he says uh, to Timothy that God richly provides those people with everything to enjoy. It's okay to have leisure. It's okay to have riches and to enjoy the wealth and the possessions that God has given you. That's part of a life pleasing to God. But thou shalt not commit adultery. So negatively, right, don't lust in your leisure. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Don't make any of these things ultimate. Or else you put them in the place of God. Even our leisure is governed by the commandments. Right? We could say that to do otherwise is unloving to God. Don't be unloving to God in your leisure. Don't be unloving to other people in your leisure. No. Not only do we have responsibility then to avoid breaking the commandments and doing what we ought not to do in our lives, right? Even in, whether it's in our work or in our leisure. 
But positively, we have things to do. It's not like do whatever you want, so long as you don't commit adultery and have no other gods. Positively, whatever is forbidden in one of the commandments, the opposite is commanded. And I've preached at greater length on that. You can, I can refer you to sermons where I've made a greater case for that. But look, thou shalt not commit adultery is stated negatively, but thou shalt love thy wife. Be faithful unto her, right? This is what is commanded implicitly in the prohibition against adultery. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. What is commanded implicitly is I shall be your God. Thou shalt worship me, right? And so there's this negative and this positive side. So positively, what are some of our responsibilities? Love your wife. Don't just not commit adultery, but love your wife. Be a good husband. Be a good wife if you are a woman married to a husband. Be a good husband. Be a good wife. These are things that are pleasing to God. Not just thou shalt not steal, but earn enough money so that you don't have to steal. Ephesians 4.28 says, in fact, earn enough so that you may have enough to share with anyone who has need. Colossians 3, 18 to 24 says this. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Says this, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his law and to rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. These things are so secular, aren't they? So ordinary, so common, and yet God wants us to do these things. Look, have a well-ordered home, be a good husband, be a good wife, be a good dad. If you're a kid, be a good kid. If you're an employer, be good to your employees. If you're an employee, work hard at your job. And, don't just do it when the boss is watching, but do it all the time. Do it. like This is a life pleasing to God. Some questions by way of application. Are you enjoying God-ordained times of leisure? Are you taking a, a break and making sure you have enough leisure? Even to eat and then some. Are you working hard at your job? And not just by way of eye service. Only when your boss is watching. Are you relating to your wife or to your husband? 
and your kids, if you have them, in an appropriate, well-ordered manner, the way that the Bible says that we, we ought to. The Lord is manifestly concerned with things like these, and not just how long the clock runs when you enter your prayer closet, your prayer chamber. Look, like, God is not pleased with you if you neglect these things that we're talking about in favor of prayer or Bible reading or theological study or giving money to the church or whatever else. Doing these secular things, which are not worship, but they are human, and God intends for us to do them, doing these things are part of a life pleasing to God. There are too many, I'm going to say men especially, I've seen it more in men, it may just be because I'm a man and, and I spend more time with men and talking to men and so it may just be more apparent to me anecdotally. But there are too many men in the church who are all about theological study and discussions about theology. And reading this book, and reading that book, and going to this conference, and going to that conference, and listening to sermons, and listening to podcasts, and going to prayer meetings, and leading prayer meetings, and standing in pulpits, and setting themselves up as spiritual men when their families are in shambles. And when they are not giving attention to the ordinary secular things that a man ought to be giving attention to if his life is to be pleasing to God. So are, I would ask you this morning, are you doing the secular well? Because if you're not, you should be. And if, you, if you're going to make it your aim to please God in 2023, figure out how to do the secular well. Start looking at what the Bible says about family and work and enjoying God's creation and taking a break, and various things like this. Conversely now, conversely now, God also wants you to do the sacred well. So negatively, as I said, don't worship other gods. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Obviously, it would be unloving to God to worship other gods. But positively, you are to worship the one true God. It's not just about like, well, I never, I never bow before any other idol or I never, you know, never do this, never do that. I tip my hat to Yahweh, you know. You ought to be serious about the worship of the one true God. Make it a priority to engage not only in the secular, but also the sacred. Listen, immediately before what I just read to you from Colossians. Immediately before. I read to you Colossians 3, 18 to 24. Immediately before that. Verses 16 and 17 say this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. With thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Are you letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly? 
Could we say, John is one in whom the word of Christ dwells richly? Or, not going to call names, but put yours in there. So and so is one in whom the word of Christ dwells richly. CRBC is a church, a community, not just an institution where people gather on Sunday, but this group of people that we know as the members of Covenant Reformed Baptist Church, those believers who are there in that blue building Sunday by Sunday, they are people in whom the Word of Christ dwells richly. Or is it like an hour on Sunday morning? Are you discipling others, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom? And, 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 and this is an implication prior to that. Evangelism is implicit here. Bringing people to faith in the first place and then teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. This is all implicit in Colossians 3. When was the last time you shared the gospel with an unbeliever? When was the last time that you phoned up a brother or sister in the church and said, hey, let's, let's get together and have a little time of prayer together. Let's get together and read a chapter of the Bible together and discuss it. Or just, or just let's get together. And when you get together, to ask questions like, how are you doing? How's, how's your walk with God? How is it with your soul? Anything in particular that you're struggling with that I could pray with you about? pray for you about are you are you evangelizing and then those who come to Christ or those who are already in Christ who are your brothers and sisters and fellow members are are you discipling right that's what that's what teaching and admonishing looks like right are you prioritizing corporate worship Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. God wants you to work hard at your job and to take care of your family and so forth. But listen here, no matter how well your career is progressing, no matter how diligent of a spouse or a parent you are, if you are not doing the sacred well, as well as the secular. If you are not doing the sacred well in addition to the secular, your lifestyle is not pleasing to God. So we ought not to neglect the secular, nor neglect the sacred, but to do the secular well and to do the sacred well. Okay, John, I believe that I should. I understand that I ought to because... There is a day of judgment coming, even for believers, where we will give an account for the way we spent our lives, and there will be rewards or fatherly discipline attached to that. Because God is our creator, because God is our redeemer, I ought to make it my aim to please Him. I realize now that I should do the secular well, and I should do the sacred well. By whose power may I do it? Well, I would say this, first of all, we are active, not passive in this endeavor. So it's not like, well, you know what, you're right. I am going to go home and lay on my couch and pray about this. 
And if God wants me to become this kind of man, I will. Because God will do it. Right? I'm going to let go and let God. Just see what happens, you know? It's His will. You know? I'm nothing, but God is all-powerful. The arm of the Lord is not too short. And I trust that if He wants my life to be pleasing to Him, He will make my life pleasing to Him. No, no, no. We're not passive in this. We must be active in this. God is not going to get up when your alarm clock goes off and read the Bible for you and pray for you. God is not tempted to sin at all and God is not going to resist temptation for you. God is not going to repent of his sin or yours. Right? There are things that you must do. You need to get up when your alarm clock goes off. You need to read your Bible. You need to pray. You need to resist temptation. When you sin, you need to repent. You need to be active in this. But then we read things like this in the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15.10 I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I. But the grace of God that is with me. I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. You see that? I, yet not I. I toil, struggling with His energy. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. God's power works underneath and behind our conscious choices and our discipline and our priorities such that whatever we accomplish is, as Ephesians 1 says, to the praise of His glorious grace. If you become a person who is well-pleasing to God this year, you need to recognize that God's grace was at the back of that and underneath that, undergirding and supporting and initiating and stirring and empowering and so on and so forth. Philippians 2.13 says that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So if you're sitting there and you're feeling like, yes, yes, I want to live this kind of life this year. You know why? Because God is working in you to will that. Because right now, the Holy Spirit is using the book He wrote and the means He ordained, the preaching, the proclamation of His Word to minister to you, His sheep, and you, His sheep, hear His voice. And God is working in you to will according to His good pleasure. This is how God works. And when you undertake this, and you say, God, help me. Holy Spirit, help me to live a life like this. He will help you. He works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. John 15, 5 says that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. So you, you're going to need to make choices and you're going to need to discipline yourself and you're going to need to set priorities and so on and so forth. But you need to understand... That even the desire to do that comes from God. That that right there is grace. 
And if there has been grace to save you, and if there has been grace to give you a longing to be the kind of Christian that you ought to be this year, to be the kind of son or daughter of God that you would look at and say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. That's grace. So you've already received grace upon grace. And what you need to do then is look to God for more grace and say, God, you are gracious to me. You've been gracious to me in Christ to save me. You've been gracious to me in bringing me to this point where it's my aim to please you. Continue to be gracious to me as I set my alarm clock to get up in the morning. Help me do that. As I try to overcome this sin or that sin that I've been battling with, give me grace to do that. We, we have to look to God's grace as we embark on such a task of making it our aim to please Him. So I, I don't want to put it to you that you just need to let go and let God and be passive and don't do anything and don't decide anything and don't try anything. But I also don't want you to, to go away feeling like, yeah, you know what? I'm really, I'm really going to change myself this year. I'm really going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and become something better than I was before. You know, I believe in myself. And I can be whatever I want to be, whatever I put my mind to. I don't want you to go out with an attitude like that either. What I want you to do is I want you to go out from here believing that God's grace has saved you. Believing that God's grace is at work helping you grow, helping you mature. And believing that God's grace is going to be with you every step of the way as you walk that out and work that out. And go out from here humble and yet optimistic and dependent upon God's grace. In a moment, we will respond even before singing with a word of prayer. Asking the Spirit to help us live these kind of lives that are pleasing to Him this year. Not lives of sanctimoniously pious hypocrisy, supposedly doing a, a, a good job with the sacred by praying and reading theology and so forth while neglecting our secular responsibilities like family and work and so forth. And yet not lives of neglectful relegation of God to the periphery, either working hard at our jobs and in our families, but neglecting the church, neglecting the fellowship of the saints, neglecting the Bible, neglecting prayer, not that either. We're going to pray and ask God for this in a moment. But then let us endeavor to leave from here, as one of the saints of old said, Resolve to labor for that which we pray for. Let us endeavor then, and set your minds at the beginning of this year, to make time to prioritize the gathered worship of the saints. Every Lord's Day. Both morning and evening. It's the Lord's Day, not the Lord's morning. I know I beat this drum. If I... Surely it's not too much. To give to God. Whatever you make of the fourth commandment and its application or not to the people of the new covenant. Y'all know where I stand on that. Surely it's not too much. And surely it's going to be helpful to me be among God's people morning and evening, Sunday by Sunday. And let us endeavor to make time to prioritize the meetings of God's people if we're at all able in between Sundays also. Whether they take the form of community groups or prayer meetings or 
whatever else. Again, surely this would help us and benefit us in our relationship with God. And it will be one way that we can make sure that we don't neglect the sacred. Let us men lead our wives and our families in worship at home, reading with them and praying with them and singing together, even if it's just a brief time every day. Make sure your homes are not just secular, but also sacred. And man, y'all got the primary responsibility on that. And then let us go out into the secular world and interact and labor, not just as citizens of Christ's kingdom, but also of the common kingdom, as citizens of Barbados or wherever else. And let us seek the welfare of Babylon, so to speak, as the prophet Jeremiah commanded God's people to, so long ago to do in Jeremiah 29. Let us, as Ecclesiastes 5 says, eat and drink and find enjoyment in all of our toil and whatever wealth and possessions we have and accept our lot in life. It's not all sacred, but it's secular too. This will be pleasing to God. Simply a well-ordered life. Loving God, loving your neighbor, keeping His commandments.